In the 14th century, Italian poet Dante Alighieri penned his masterpiece, The Divine Comedy. The epic poem tells the story of a lost pilgrim who is guided through hell to meet his beloved in heaven. This fantastic journey is also a coded allegory. Hidden in the symbolism is a much deeper story with a map of history that connects Dante's life with our own. This is Dante's history. Inferno, Canto 18. There is a place in hell called the Malabolge, holy of stone and of an iron color, as is the circle that around it turns. To sum up the journey so far, Dante and his ghostly guide Virgil have traveled across seven circles of the Inferno, a realm full of blind souls who are trapped in cycles of unending torment. All the while, Dante the poet calls out the Florentine citizens who he felt helped doom his city to chaos. In the last canto, our travelers completed their long trip across the circle of violence. They encountered the sphinx-like beast of fraud known as Garion, and the final group of violent sinners, the usurers, those who were violent against art. Then they climbed upon Garion's shoulders and dove into the black abyss that represents the spiritual fall from violence to the deeper sin of fraud. In this canto, the pilgrim will describe the structure of lower hell and encounter the first two kinds of damned souls who committed the sin of fraud. The canto opens with the name and description of our new setting, the Malibolge. This name was invented by Dante and roughly translates to evil pouches. As we will see, this refers to the many ditches that make up this ring. The landscape and the surrounding walls, which Dante compares to the walls of a city, are made of a dark iron-colored stone. At the center of this place is the ever-present abyss, which leads to the deepest part of hell, an area that Dante will describe when the proper time comes. For now, he describes the area between the high walls and the abyss, an evil field that contains ten ditches. Dante asks the reader to think of the moats that surround a castle or stronghold. These ten concentric moats are then connected by jagged rock bridges like spokes on a wheel, all leading to the hub of the abyss. After a somewhat lengthy exposition, we find ourselves back in the narrative, at the point when Garion left our travelers at the end of the last canto. As usual, Virgil leads the way, keeping to his left as they encircle the first moat. On the pilgrim's right, he can see a new batch of demonic guards armed with whips who lash at the naked sinners. The pilgrim describes two distinct groups moving through the middle of the ditch. The inner group moves clockwise, the same direction as the pilgrim, and the outermost group is moving counterclockwise towards the pilgrim. And they all move slightly faster than our travelers, thanks to the demons whipping at their backs. 
Dante compares this sight to something that happened in Rome during the first Christian Jubilee. If you recall from Canto II, in 1300, Pope Boniface VIII offered to forgive all the sins of anyone who visited the churches of St. Paul and St. Peter in Rome. More on this in a moment. That year, on average, there were reportedly 200,000 pilgrims in the narrow streets of Rome, not including the Romans themselves. There was also only one bridge to the section where St. Peter's is located. To help control the crowds, the Romans used their invention of two-way traffic. One group would walk towards the castle of St. Angelo, and the other towards the hill known as Monte Giannacolo. From his description, it would seem Dante had witnessed this firsthand. He could have, but a peaceful gathering of that magnitude would have been a rare and memorable sight for anyone at that time, and the event would have likely produced many vivid accounts that Dante could have drawn from. But this act of spiritual debt forgiveness was known as an indulgence. There were three essential steps to this process. Contrition, the sinner must show remorse for their transgressions. Next was confession, the sinner needed to admit their guilt to a priest. And the last step was satisfaction. This was the way in which one could repay the debt of sin they accumulated, either by reciting a simple prayer, as was the case for common transgressions, or through a generous donation in the form of money or commissioning public works, as was the case in the last canto with Scrovini Chapel. It was then common for moneylenders to seek indulgence to make up for their sinful practice of usury. These indulgences would become the central point of criticism during the Protestant Reformation two centuries later. Dante then brings our attention back to the horned demons armed with whips who patrol the natural rock bridges. A single lash from them is enough to get the damned moving faster, rather than risk receiving a second or third. And these horned devils may also be a hint of what other sins are at work here, as we will soon see. The pilgrim spies a familiar face among the damned and stops in his tracks. Virgil notices, and since he was leading the descent, must ascend to return to the pilgrim. The damned in question lowers his eyes in an attempt to hide himself. But the pilgrim has seen this face before and calls the soul out by name. If false are not the features which thou bearest, thou art Venetico Caccianamico, but what doth bring thee to such pungent sauces? This damn soul is Venedico Ciaccanamico, a powerful Guelph nobleman from the city of Bologna in northern Italy. He was also known as a pleasant man, but as we will see, that was just a facade. The last line about pungent or spicy sauces is likely a reference to an insult used in Bologna at the time. The word Dante uses is salse which was the name of a ravine near Santa Maria in Monte, a place that also became an infamous dumping ground for the bodies of usurers and other criminals. So in Bologna, they'd say, your father was thrown into the salse, or something to that effect. And if you're wondering if this has any connection to the famous bolognese sauce, there doesn't appear to be one, and we probably shouldn't bother making one. But this mention of sauce is also one of several deliberate food or cooking references Dante will make in the Eighth Circle. 
One Dante scholar has put forth the argument that the inferno is much like the human digestive system, with the malabolge representing the belly. We'll come back to this idea of food and digestion later in this canto. Venetico responds to the pilgrim, admitting that he doesn't wish to answer, but is compelled by Dante's informed voice and plain speech. He recalls what is to him an ancient world and confirms that, yes, it was he who offered the fair Gisola to the Marquis. This is understood to be one of the Marquis of Este, whom Venetico was looking to gratify by offering Gisobella, his sister, so that the Marquis may do with her as he wished. Dante also alludes to the fact that there were several versions of this story, but all of them included Venetico's lack of shame in offering his sister's chastity in hopes of a reward. Venetico tries to defend himself by informing Dante that this part of the Inferno is full of Bolognese citizens. He claims there are more natives of the city here than there are alive in Bologna, which is between the rivers of Reno and Savina, and where the people say Sipa, a distinctly Bolognese way of saying yes. He's saying this type of avarice was common in his city, and hoping Dante would sympathize. But before either can say another word, one of the horned demon guardians lashes at the sinner. He calls him Pander and tells him to keep moving, that there are no women to coin here. Here we see the first of two types of sinner located in the first moat. Pandering is the act of indulging another person's desire for immoral or self-destructive behavior. In the example given, Venetico used his sister to gain more wealth and status. His sin included indulging the sin of another sinner, in this case, the Marquis, and his lust. But he also did it for money, which essentially makes him a kind of pimp. This use of the word coin is also noteworthy, as we have just come from the circle containing usurers, who used money to make money. And now we are dealing with sinners who use other sinners to make money. Currency will continue to play a role in the coming contos. The Pilgrim and Virgil continue along their way until they come upon one of the craggy rock bridges that run perpendicular to the moats. The rock projection is raised so they must ascend and also turn right so they are no longer encircling the first moat and instead headed directly towards the abyss. As they approach the raised middle of the bridge that arches over the first moat of sinners, Virgil draws the pilgrim's attention to the second line of sinners whose faces were previously unseen because they were moving in the same direction as Dante. Before the pilgrim can speak, Virgil points out a tall one among these damned. He also notes that this soul sheds no tears for his pain, that he maintains a royal aspect. We are told that this is Jason, who used his heart and cunning against the Colchian of the ram. This is a reference to the famous myth of the Golden Fleece. That myth takes place in 1300 BC, before the Trojan War. Jason was the son of royalty, but his father, heir to the throne, was betrayed by his half-brother. In order to avenge his father and earn his kingship, Jason is given the impossible task of retrieving an artifact known as the Golden Fleece, which was made of ram skin and hung from a tree in a region on the eastern coast of the Black Sea called Colchis. Jason's ship was called the Argo, meaning swift. The journey was known as the Argonautica, and the warrior crew he brought with him 
were the Argonauts. The Golden Fleece is believed to be a metaphor for the quest for immortality, secret knowledge, or literal gold. Jason is eventually successful, but along the way, he committed a few acts of deception that Dante takes issue with. Virgil mentions how Jason passed by the island of Lemnos, which was inhabited by only females. According to another legend, the female inhabitants, having failed to maintain their temples, were cursed with a hideous smell. The Lemian men turned instead to the slave women they captured from neighboring Thrace. So the Lemian women decided to take their revenge on their adulterous husbands, and one night they murdered every single male inhabitant of the island. Not soon after this, Jason and the Argonauts arrived in Lemnos. They were welcomed by the now lustful women and their queen Hypsipyle, daughter of the former king. While there, Jason seduced the queen, offering her only tokens or empty gestures of false love. He even impregnated her before leaving the island, never to return. Dante notes that Hypsipyle was the first to deceive, alluding to the fact that she secretly spared her father's life. Jason did this again later in the tale with another princess named Medea, whom he had promised to marry after securing the Golden Fleece. But again, Jason left her and their children for another woman. Medea eventually gets her revenge by murdering her children and Jason's new wife in the Greek tragedy bearing her name. Jason and the damned walking with him were all seducers. Much like the panders, they deceived others by exploiting another person's lust. Dante is revisiting the themes of upper hell and seeing how the fraudulent exploit the sins of others. As we will see, this pattern will continue for the next nine Bolgia. Almost immediately, our travelers are at the next valley. This part of Inferno is unique in that it features two different sets of sinners in one canto. This is, as we will see, because of the related nature of the two sins. As they reach the base of the bridge that arches over the second Bolgia, Dante hears the next group of sinners. They are moaning like someone on their deathbed, but also snorting like dogs or pigs. He can also hear the sounds of the sinners beating and slapping themselves. There was a similar self-berating quality to the gluttonous sinners in the third circle. Again, we see Dante is following suit in his re-examination of the first seven circles, in this case, exploring how another person's gluttony can be exploited. Dante peers down and notices the walls of this pit are encrusted with a substance that has a smell so offensive it makes the eyes water. He also notes that this moat is so deep that he can't see the bottom without crossing to the center of the arched bridge. This is an allusion to the deeper nature of this version of fraud. When they reach the center of the bridge and look down, Dante realizes that these damned souls are covered in human excrement. And the snorting sounds suggest that they are shoving their faces into it as well. For this setting, Dante may have been inspired by the real-life ditches on the outskirts of towns where human excrement was often dumped to later be used as fertilizer for the fields. But the pilgrim takes note of one of these filthy damned souls, a man with so much crap on his head that Dante is unable to tell if the sinner has the identifying haircut of a clergyman called a tonsure, 
where only the top of the head is shaved. Think Friar Tuck. This sinner notices the pilgrim staring at him and loudly asks why he's being singled out. Dante tells the sinner that he has seen him before, when the sinner had dry hair, as in when he was alive. He no longer pities these sinners. We learn that this is Alessio Intermenehi. Not much is known about him other than he was a contemporary of Dante's from a prominent family, and like Dante, he was a white Guelph, and apparently he also had a reputation for giving excessive and insincere praise. Alessio admits that he has been submerged by his flattery, which he was never tired of using. This seems to suggest that the substance that resembles human excrement is symbolic of flattery itself, and that this pit and these people are full of it. Dante uses the word tongue to denote Alessio's speech, which along with the act of submerging are more references to food and cooking. Dante also compares Alessio's head to a pumpkin, which was also a term for head in Luca. Dante will also be continuing this pattern of picking citizens from different cities in the Tuscan region. One early Dante scholar seemed to understand these food references when he described Alessio's reputation for flattery in this 14th century commentary. Well, this Alessio had a terrible habit. He was so given to flattery that he was unable to say anything at all without seasoning it with the oil of adulation. He greased everyone. He licked everyone, even the most vile and venal servants. In short, he completely dripped with flattery and stank of it. One of Dante's main inspirations, the monk Thomas Aquinas, described flattery as being contrary to charity because it praised the sin of another and encouraged them to continue in that delusion. And it was also a form of harm against another's body and soul, and it resulted in the doubling of sin because the flatterer is not just deceiving the subject, the subject is deceiving themselves. Flattery is also closely related to pandering, as they often go hand in hand, which is likely why Dante chooses to show them both at once. Finally, Virgil draws the pilgrim's attention deeper into the crowd and points out one last soul among the flatterers, an ancient one. It is an unkempt woman, crouched and scratching herself with filthy nails. She was a prostitute, who, when offered the gift of a slave girl from her client, a braggart soldier, is said to have feigned gratitude. This reference is to a comedy from 2 BC called The Eunuch, written by Roman playwright Terence. In the play, the prostitute knows that the slave girl is actually her sister. Although Dante was more than likely commenting on Cicero's retelling of the tale, because the prostitute's words are actually delivered by the braggart soldier's servant, or Parasite, who is the actual flatterer of the play. The servant agrees with everything the master says because he hopes to one day be invited to dinner. Cicero also had this to say about flattery. Such men delight in flattery, and when a complimentary speech is fashioned to suit their fancy, they think the empty phrase is proof of their own merits. There is nothing, therefore, in a friendship in which one of the parties to it does not wish to hear the truth, and the other is ready to lie. Nor should we see any humor in the fawning parasites and comedies if there were no braggart soldiers. The canto ends with Virgil's hope that the pilgrim is satisfied with what he has seen, 
so that they may move on. In the next canto, our travelers continue deeper into the Malabolge and explore the third subring of the Eighth Circle. We'll also learn about the sin of simony and how fraud interplays with greed. Next time on Dante's History. I'd like to take a moment to thank my Patreon supporters, Stephanie, Cosima, Edward, and Matthew. And special thanks to Mike from A History of Italy podcast. If you'd like to help support the podcast, visit Dante'sHistory.com. Thank you for your support, and thank you for listening.